You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey, everyone. Um, welcome to the Guidepost. Tony here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, we really appreciate it. Um, just a couple of real quick things. You know, we've got a ton of content coming out here on redfish. Um, obviously, deep concerns on striped bass. Uh, some information also on false albacore coming out. But, you know, we've, we've been pretty serious lately and uh and just constantly constantly hitting these issues over and over again and uh feel like felt like we needed to just kind of have an uh, easy breezy uh podcast so i called my buddy who's who's joined me on this one um and gonna introduce him in a second but just wanted to remind everyone if you have any questions or comments send them to comments at saltwaterguysassociation.org and if we read them on the air you will win yourself a new pair of costas so again, thanks for joining us and wanted to introduce our guest today. Um, good friend of mine, a uh, friendship that's really developed over the years. One of the funniest people I know with deep, deep roots in the industry. Um, and if anyone has ever read and appreciated the, uh, the, the witty humor um with a little bit of an edge to it in the blog uh and you know kind of whole communications factory that is moldy chum um my guest today is brian bennett so brian how are you doing my friend we're just looking at each other laughing on the video because god knows where this is gonna go how are you doing brian i'm doing i'm doing great tony and i gotta i have to preface this whole thing with like this is you know I, been doing Moldy Chum for a long time and doing a lot of podcasts, but I, this is arguably the penultimate like experience that I'm going to have in my my kind of social media career. I can't tell you how excited I am to be a guest of yours on the Guidepost. I'm super stoked. So thanks for having me. I I don't know. I don't know. First of all, I don't know where that's coming from. I appreciate <laughs> it. I don't know why anyone listens to us, but they do. So it's you know it's the whole thing is deeply confusing to me, um, but. I'm okay, man. I'll just ride with it. Uh, you know, I, I, every morning when I wake up, Brian, I feel like the Blues Brothers, where they're like, <laughs> got a half a pack of cigarettes and a full tank of gas, and nothing can stop us because we're on a mission from God. From God, <laughs> like, yes, yeah, so stuff just falls in my lap, man. It's it's crazy on a day to day. Like, I'll tell you what, if if you wanna if you wanna work with us, man, you better embrace the chaos, um, yeah, because you uh -huh. never know, man. You never know. And you just kind of got to be ready. So, um, well, yeah. And if I could add too, you know, in the world that you you're operating in right now, that conservation world, and I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit of the regional aspects of conservation work, but I have a full appreciation for the kind of the chaos behind some of that and the, the politics and all of it, politics and sausage, right? You don't want to know how it's made. They say, well, yeah, you're, you're making it. So um, hats off to you guys on what you're doing. You know, the only thing well, I would add know. is like, this is the penultimate time, you know, penultimate experience for me. I was like, and I'm going to lobby to get on the Millhouse podcast now. 
<laughs> oh, you have, dude. That's that is that's the big leagues, man. Now, this is you're you're in you're in quadruple A ball right now. Like you get on you get on the Millhouse podcast, and that's you have you yeah. have officially made it. Um, yeah, so I don't think I, I know, I don't I don't have the angling cred, perhaps, but. Yeah, we'll see. Nah, Maybe Andy's listening. You know, well, they're they're lost, Brian, and and I and I think by the time I hit stop recording on this, people will understand why. So you know, I had this conversation with you. I know the answer, but coming from you, you know, it's it's a much better story. So I, I always wondered. I was big big fan, big fanboy of Moldy Chum. It always makes me laugh. Uh, always always love you know love the humor, just that kind of style of humor that that you always can produce. And one of the first times I met you, I kind of pulled you aside and I'm like, all right, where'd you get the name? <laughs> so I, that you got to tell that story. You, you have to, because mm. I, you know, coming from the East coast, I was like, I was like, you know, there was a bucket of chum. He forgot on a boat. Right. That's cause that, that was just what my gut said, but wh- how'd you come up with it? So the beauty of it is, you know, the name is actually, you know, how it came about and I'll get to that in a second, but yeah, it, it, what's nice about it is it's kind of applic- applicable across different areas, right? Depending on your perspective. <clears throat> so uh, Moldy Chump started in 2005 and I had had a blog and that was when it was all about blogging. And uh, I had had a blog prior to that. I come out of the outdoor industry. It was called the Piton, which was very similar to kind of the Chum, um, uh, but it was really outdoor industry focused. And I was a late arrival to the fishing game. I didn't really start really seriously fishing until 2000 and maybe even 2001. So um, when the, when the, the Piton kind of got its first cease and desist letter and things started getting real serious, uh, you know, my partner and I kind of decided to opt out, but I was really into the blogging thing and kind of the, the up and coming social media. So I was like, you know, I'm going to take the same concept and I'm going to do a fishing blog. <clears throat> and so I had it in the back of my mind. And as part of my role in my new job, I had to come up to Seattle because I worked, I was the uh, account rep for REI for Patagonia. And so, and I was living in Colorado at the time. So I was a, you know, I was a trout bum. That was kind of where I kind of began cutting my teeth on the fly fishing side. And I made a trip up and I had a chance to go fish. I don't know if, I think it was this, I'm pretty sure it was the Skagit. And we were going to fish for steelhead um, in particular. And I was standing on a bank. It was a guy next to me. And I, I'm swinging through and my, I, I get hung up and I'm like, oh shit, I'm stuck on the bottom. And the guy next to me goes, no, no, lift your rod tip. <laughs> and so I lift up and the, it just shoot the, whatever's on the end just takes off. It's like, my knuckles busting. I'm like, what? And I, I, I get the fish in close and it's a chum salmon that is really late in the spawning cycle. And it's literally like falling apart. And like this thing actually like took me into my backing. And like, as I get it close, the guy says to me, man, that is one moldy chum. <laughs> it's so I was like, boom, the light bulb went off. I go, that's going to be the name of the blog. And that's when it started. <laughs> and so now it's like, yeah, okay. Moldy chum, right. We're all familiar with it. We can, yeah, we can chum up all kinds of stuff. And that, 
it was kind of the perfect name for kind of what we do, which is we're primarily an aggregator. We try to have fun. You know, back in those days, we were the only, we were the only game in town. There's a couple other folks I should, I should point out. Marshall at Midcurrent, uh, Tom Chandler at the Trout Underground. Um, uh, I can't remember the other guy. There was another guy who had Fly Fisherman Magazine, Lee Murdoch. And we used to have this blogger. We called it the Blogger Ball at the IFTD show. Um, the international fly and trade show. We go, Hey, let's have the blogger ball. And they'd be like literally four of us. And that's how it all started. And it's, you know, been a labor of love mostly, you know, it's not, I don't make a living on it by any stretch of the imagination. I get a little bit of swag through the deal, but you know, not a ton. Um, It's really been, um, you know, we, I think I might've mentioned this to you earlier, but there's been since 2005, I would not have to take off my shoes to be able to count all the days that we have not posted something like literally since 05, you know, we, we used to try to post five things a day. We're, we're down to three a day now just because of life and children and all that kind of stuff. So it, it's a little bit more manageable, but we're super proud of what we've been able to accomplish over the years. And even more proud of the fact that we've kind of had some fun around it. And we think we've kind of, you know, we've, we've inspired some people. I think in two ways, you know, one on the social media side and then the other on our conservation ethic, which has always been a foundation of what we do. You know, the reality is, Brian, like I, I really agree with that. Like, you know, what attracted me was kind of the, you know, the raw cutting humor that <laughs> kind of, you know, pervades, you know, everything that that Moldy Chum does. But, you know, I think, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh I think one of the coolest things, Bri, was like there's a whole generation of new fly anglers that kind of grew up with that kind of snarky, you know, mm-hmm. little little sarcasm, little this, little, you know, kind of kind of the ability to make fun of yourself and and not afraid to make fun of others for whatever reason. You know, kind of that like unashamed, you know, um I don't know how to put it. Uh, it just, just kind of, you know, a lot of, a lot of what goes on in, in fly fishing, um, is really uh. canned and it's bullshit. You know, it's, I, I think, uh, I think it's kind of created a backlash on, on fly fishermen because everyone thinks we're kind of snooty, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and let me tell you something, man, uh, you know, I, most of the fly fishermen that I hang out with and know are pretty utilitarian. You know, it's just a, it's just a way to catch a fish, and it's just a way that we enjoy to catch a fish. And I mean, I see some of these guys, and you know, all all dressed up and all their stuff, and I, I'll share it. Like they look silly to me too. You know, like it's not. It's there's there's a that's what you see in the magazines, and that's what you see in some of the social media because of advertising and stuff like that. But it's not, it's not who, I mean, there's a lot more trout bums with 300 patches on their 10 year old waders than there are guys head to toe in the latest stuff, you know? Yeah. It's changed a lot over the years. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, at least, I mean, I don't have the deep, deep roots that, I mean, I'm kind of on the edge there, but we, you know, we started in 05 and, you look at what's how the industry has evolved. The fly trade has evolved over those years. And you kind of look at where it's at now. 
And the pandemic contributed to this quite a bit, right? Because everybody was looking for something to do. So you had, you know, a lot of folks that were like, hey, walking into fly shops and buying complete outfits to go, you know, because they, they wanted to escape their living room. Um, <clears throat> and the growth of social media has really fueled a lot of this. And what's what's crazy about it is that, you know, I think that, you know, in terms of, you know, how the, it, it's kind of grown up to some extent. You know, back in the day, it was really, you know, more of, you know, it was, it was very compartmentalized. It was, it wasn't mainstream. And, you know, it's not only become mainstream, but it's also, you know, beginning to embrace, I mean, this is, I, I guess I'll put it this way. One of my, one of my favorite lines that I've come up with is that fly fishing is kind of the Petri dish of everything that goes on in the world, whether it's in the business world, in the retail world in what happens culturally as well. And so, you know, whether it's technology or whatever, you know, fly fishing kind of look at that focus and you look at diversity issues and getting women into the sport and those kind of things. You know, these are things that the sports really just embraced in the last four or five years. Um, so, you know, but I would, I would couch that comment with a little bit of be careful of what you wish for. Um, you know, you look at the success and the growth and, you know, we're beginning to see, you know, are we loving some of these places that we love to go fish to death to some extent? You know, everybody loves to talk about the movie, you know, a river runs through it and how that had an impact. You look at what happened with the pandemic. You look at the growth of social media and the stoke factor, um, you know, that that kind of stoke influence, I think, is what's helped drive the change in the generational the generational shift in fly fishing, but it's also driving the challenge of what happens when your, your kind of love and interest is really driven by social media. Um, and I'll that, tell you and the that, two positives, Brian, the two positives that I see out of it is, you know, first of all, it's a beautiful sport. And, and, and like, you yep. know, we take for granted the stuff that we see. And I, you know, we were talking about it when we were on the boat in Louisiana. Um, you know, me and Blaine were out there fishing together and, you know, when you combine and we were, we were on, uh, Captain Bailey shorts boat and, you know, really popular, incredible guide down there in Hopedale. And, uh, and, you know, then you got me and Blaine chocolate and you start doing the numbers and you add up all the places that we've been and all the things that the three of us cumulatively have seen. And I promise you, there wasn't a single bird that flew by that mm -hmm. we didn't, we weren't like, Hey, that's cool. Look at that. Or like, totally. you know, a shrimp flicks on the shoreline. Like you see that, or, or you know, right. red, big old, big old bull redfish, you know, back at almost eyeballs out of the water, just cruising, look like a U-boat, you know, coming mm -hmm. down the sod bank. And it doesn't matter how many times you see it. It's a beautiful sport. And I, and that, so that's number one. And number two, you know, it's an incredible vehicle for conservation. And I don't, you know, when I, when I kind of started out and saying like, you know, people all decked out in the newest stuff, I certainly wasn't criticizing any of the manufacturers or anything because, you know, it's their job to put out, you know, bigger and better stuff every year. Um, but I'll tell you the one positive is because of social media, I don't know another sport out there where, a vast majority of the manufacturers are on board with conservation and they walk the walk. They really do. 
They do, they do what they can. A lot of them do. And the ones that don't are getting left behind. And I, and, and no doubt and it's, you've done, ASGA has done a, a great job in terms of reaching out to both the constituents of, you know, the conventional tackle world and the fly world. And it kind of speaks to, you know, what you were mentioning before, there is some, you know, some perception out there that, you know, the fly sh- fish- fishing world can be, you know, come across as elitist to some people. And so, you know, I think that, you know, how we, you know, can work together, at least around that stuff across those two and break down some of those barriers um, would probably go a long way in terms of kind of reducing some of that impression. And I've got to say, you know, me personally, um, you know, I get super excited, you know, looking at my expensive fly rails. But when I first got my Stella 18,000 Shimano, I was like, Man, that's that stuff's as nice as anything in the fly world, you know. Like everybody talks about, oh my god, you know, all this stuff is like, I got news for you. Um, you know, there's that. I, that was a, you know, I got into the sport. I think it's really interesting when we talk to folks, you know, on, on the work I do with the, the Wild Steelhead Coalition. You know, a lot of folks got into the fishing world through the conventional tackle world and then made the shift to fly. So we, you know, I had done, we had done an interview and we hadn't referenced, but you know, I, I, I've done a ton of work for the wild Steelhead coalition. We actually have a podcast and we did a thing called first and last, which was, we got people to describe the first steelhead they caught and the last steelhead they caught. And it was pretty much unanimous that the first steelhead that everybody caught was caught on conventional tackle. Um, I came in to support the other way. I came in through fly um, and, and then actually got uh, developed an appreciation on on the conventional tackle side through some other experiences and then really came to appreciate the nuances and the technicalities and all the stuff of conventional tackle. The dynamics are kind of the same. You know, you can, you can go buy a Barbie rod at Walmart and get out there and get it done, or you can go out and rock a, you know, Stella 20,000 or 18,000 and you know, take out a second mortgage on your house to be able to go out and to, to do that. So the dynamics are pretty similar. So I think that, you know, it's interesting that, you know, there is, I would love to see more collaboration across. I think you guys are really doing a great job kind of, you know, ASGA is doing a great job in terms of being able to have those discussions with both of those communities and bring those communities together. You know, Jenkins at, you know, at his shop and those places, um, you know, it's not unusual where you see a you know retail shop that is you know as fluent and as effective on both sides of the uh, you know the tackle equation. So pretty cool. Well, Jenks is Jenks is one in a million, man. I mean that guy, mm-hmm. he sell an igloo to an Eskimo. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean he's he's unbelievable. I was I, I was talking to Jenkins. Nutrient. Listen, I was talking to Jenkins today, man. He's funny. So mm-hmm. I said to him, I said, man, they were making fun of me, Peter, in Louisiana. I said, because I, br- I broke out like uh, I was there's a video somewhere that hopefully nobody ever sees. But I, I was calling this one setup. I have Billy Baru from Caddyshack, you know, <laughs> oh, the putter. Baby, baby. And I, yeah, <laughs> I was put, I'm putting it together and I'm like, man, we need some we need some luck. I'm breaking out Billy. And I was like, Billy, 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 Billy. And I, you know, oh, I, I, and, I, and da- damn, if I didn't if that wasn't the thing, right. That, that I got all the stupid sheep's head on, which are the biggest assholes God ever put on the earth. Uh, it's to try and catch on a fly rod. 
So um, for sure, <sighs> they have those little oh, mouths God. too. <laughs> oh, rows of human teeth. You got like you got like a centimeter to put the damn hook. Um, That's exactly right. Exactly. Oh, God, what I, it's a, it, funny. It's, I, I don't know what it is, Tony. Like it's so funny. Everybody goes, "Oh, those things are so hard to catch." Same, people tell me the same thing about permit. It's like. For some reason, permit and all the other fish that people associate with permit, like, oh, sheep's head, it's the, it's the Cajun permit. Like, every time I go fish for them, I never have any trouble catching them. <laughs> so, well, so, you know, it's all, it's all in for permit. My experiences is where you're fishing for them. Well, it helps and, if and, it helps if there's permit there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, if you go to the Keys, oh, tough. Those, those are educated fish, man. Yeah, I mean, and same thing goes for and same thing goes for the the tarp and 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 the, and the bonefish. You mm -hmm. know, the, those are educated fish. And and man, sure. you know, anyone anyone that asks me like, where should I where should I get into? You know, like, where should you get into trout fishing? Should you go to the Latorte Spring Run in Pennsylvania, where you're using like a th size thirty six blue wing olive, and you have to crawl on your belly, you know, for a no. hundred yards so you don't spook no. a a no. six inch brown trout probably not pick. yeah probably not where you should start your your trout fishing life and you know probably you go not. to some of these places like belize i mean geez you know average yeah. bonefish is small but you'll see schools of 300 of them you don't need oh, to yeah. be particularly awesome you know to to learn it and sure. so like it depends on where you go for if you're going to the keys for permit uh yeah I mean, no you're no, you go stick to, again. Go to church. <laughs> go to church every day for six months before, and you, it's not you, you know, Cuba from there, you just like grab a boat and kind of run across. And sure, yeah, man, I, that's true. I don't. I haven't had a lot of trouble with permit because where I go for permit, there's lots of them and they're unpressured. But um, yeah, I used. To, I, well, my, I'll, I'll my, tell you what, man. If you want to, if you want to get the full permit experience, go to Louisiana and throw it throw at those stripes dishonest <laughs> sobs that i was thrown at because i the the one that took it the one the first one i caught looked like it was on a pogo stick when it took the fly i mean he fully committed and i was cool. like he was like doing 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 but anyway so i'm i'm sitting there and i got billy baru out right and i you know right. just broke broke it out and no, and they're no. like had no, no. and they're no. like how old is that reel i said it's about 15 years old and they're like, what? What are you? You know, I guess they expected me to have the latest, greatest, and shiniest. And yeah. I'm like, look, man, I'm a Gen Xer. If I got mm -hmm. something that ain't broke, I ain't getting a mm -hmm. new one. And if That's I right. if, if I said, you have any idea? I was using this reel when you were like, you know, when you had just stopped pooping Shitting in your pants. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, and it's never failed me not once. I, I, yeah. And you know the the extra three ounces that it weighs, um, mm -hmm. maybe it'll hurt your little wrist, but it doesn't hurt mine. And Fluger uh, metalist, you know, man, that my first fly rail. <clears throat> so anyway, Jenkins, I'm on the phone with Jenkins, and I'm telling him this, and he's like, "You need a new fly rail." And I'm like, "Peter, stop it!" You know, because like he's just the consummate salesman. You know what I mean? And I'm like, "Come on, man!" I'm like, "You gonna try and deal. sell me a new fly reel after that story?" I'm like, "That wasn't the moral of the story, Peter." So exactly. you know, I, 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 look, that's the thing, right? Like, I I find something that I like, and yeah. that's what I I don't. I've been married for over twenty years. I found I found a girl that not will not only tolerate me, but is you know, cute as a button and has a sweet disposition. That's it. 
that's it yeah that's who yeah. i like I, she will put me in the ground either by her hand or by or by natural causes and i that's it i find something that i like and i stick with it and that's my personality and and you know well, um so we talk since we're talking about our significant others so when i met my wife who was soon to, to become my wife i should say i didn't fish <clears throat> I lived in, I, I moved to Missouri. She was the first person I met when I cruised into Missouri for the first time. She worked at the warehouse. I was working for Kelty Backpacks, you know, dating myself there, right? So, um, so I met her and she owned a tracker bass boat with two trolling motors and three fish finders on it. <laughs> and she, I was the sales guy at, Kelty and I'd call her up every Friday and go, Hey, I need to get a hundred grand out the door today. And she'd make it happen because she's wearing the warehouse. And I go, what are you doing this weekend? And like, Oh, we're going to Truman Lake to go fish for bass. I'm like, fishing stupid. <clears throat> and then I got into fishing and she ended up coming to Colorado and we connected, got married. And I was like, Hey, where's that tracker bass boat? <laughs> And it was, it had been in her parents' basement actually. And she ended up giving it away before I realized she had given it away. But, um, she was the bass assassin and she doesn't fish very much at all. She doesn't fish at all now, but I did have her on the East coast and it was really amazing. Uh, we were fishing some, uh, we we're fishing a, a estuary Creek for striped bass. And there were some dudes in with boats and I was catching a few fish and she was just, slaying them and the guys in the boats are like what's what what's going on right because here she is like she'd be like woohoo another one and it was like it's that bass bite like it doesn't matter what kind of bass it is and she she gets it done and the great story about my this is a great story about my wife so she shot like the largest deer in the county one year <laughs> and she had it mounted <clears throat> and because she didn't want it to suffer she shot it like right between the eyes so they had to patch that spot <clears throat> And she had it mounted. I had it hanging in my office <laughs> and I had the guys from Cabela's come out to do a, a sales call, right? They come out, they wanted to talk about product and all that. So I give them, we had just moved to Colorado from Missouri. So we're touring it through the office. I walk into my office and there's my, my wife's mount on the wall. And they're like, Oh my God. Wow. That was beautiful. It's like, where'd you get that one? I go, yeah, it's not mine. It's my wife's. <laughs> and they were like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> classic. The Cabela's dudes. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I got more credit so, because of the fact that my wife's and not mine. Yeah. Classic. <clears throat> this, this may not come as a surprise to you, but like, um, you know, my wife, when we first started that, so like from the moment she met me, I was like, hello, I'm Tony and I fish every second that I can. You know, I just want to put that out there before you even, before we wow. even go out for our first date, like, wow. uh, you need to yeah. know this. I, I don't, I don't, I don't drink mm -hmm. too much. I don't gamble. I, I don't, I, I fish. I am not a Renaissance man. I'm not going to pick up a gu guitar and, and start strumming. Like I'm not, I don't want to learn anything else. I want to, I can fix anything in a house. I can build anything. I can put an addition on a home if you want, and I fish. That's it. This is me. This is all you need to know about me. So she she went fishing with me, and she actually enjoyed it. You know, the first couple times, and man, I this is before cell phones and 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 you know yeah. instant weather radar. And I got mm -hmm. I got us stuck in one hell of a storm, uh -huh. like like bad one. 
bad worst one of the worst ones i've ever seen on the bay on the chesapeake and uh and she was like you know what i'm done with those boats you ain't ever get me on one of them things again and the the wow. other day she was the other day i was talking talking about something and she was like i bet you wish you had a fishing wife and i said absolutely not i am totally yeah. content with the way totally. things are i'm perfectly fine with exactly the way things are so um yeah i was telling so, yeah. somebody a story yesterday about the last time i think that my wife fished i took her steelhead fishing here on the coast and she was pregnant <clears throat> with my daughter josephine and you can see you know clearly in the waders and then through the jacket you know that she's like six months pregnant <clears throat> and she had never gone steelhead fishing and it is dumping rain <laughs> like dumping like crazy and i have a photograph of that day and she had actually hooked two steelhead lost them both like at her feet and um but i have a picture of her standing there like rod out like mid-swing the the river is chocolate latte brown like it's completely blown and she's looking at me <laughs> it was probably like your wife that day out on the Chesapeake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She hasn't, hasn't fished since. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it was, that was, that was just a huge, huge mistake and a little bit of a lot of stupidity on my side for not kind of seeing the weather change. And uh, yeah. man, yeah. that was a, that was a long, that was a long ride home in the boat and it was an even longer ride home in my truck. um real real long ride home in my truck so um so yeah man you know i know i know you live out on the west coast i do and i kind of always say uh you know anyone in this conservation stuff uh, the issues are the same the fish just to look a little bit different and the one place where i don't think that's necessarily true in the lower 48 is the Pacific Northwest. And I think y'all are facing, it's a little bit different. Um, it is. And it's yeah. a, and I, I don't, you know, you, you're kind of the expert on it. I am certainly not. So what, what kind of issues are, is the fishing community facing out there? Two part question. What, what are the issues? And that's going to be a real long answer. And the second question is, do you think there's any hope? that it's going to come back um two really good questions so i'll i'll preface the conversation as you know i still feel i'm still relatively grounded in the east coast as well and my folks are still in boston i do striper camp every year i mean that's kind of where i you know i mean i went to salem state college had some of the best striped bass fishing down the end of the street but i didn't fish at the time unfortunately which is a bummer to find out that i wasted four years of college with some of the best fishing right down the street you know i moved here you know that in 03 and I've been here ever since. And through all of that, you know, I've gotten involved in the conservation community. It's really around anadromous fish, which for those of you who don't know, it's a fish that is born in the rivers and heads to the ocean and comes back and spawns back and it's in the river. Now on anadromous and salmon, they die after they come back. The, my passion is really around steelhead, <clears throat> wild steelhead in particular. And, um, they can do that multiple times, right? You've got multiple saltfish. They they spawn, they go back out to the ocean. Um, and your point about the challenges of conservation here are not only different here, but they actually vary from state to state and country to country. 
So Washington has a different set of dynamics than Oregon. Oregon has a different set of dynamics than California. British Columbia has a different set of dynamics than the Pacific Northwest. And they're all a little bit different. They're all managed differently. And it's really, really complex. You've got First Nations issues in British Columbia here and in Washington, um, not as much in Oregon and somewhat in Northern California. The biggest challenge is that these fish runs are on a, have been on a precipitous decline. And, <clears throat> you know, your question about, and this is a particular in wild steelhead. I mean, the news just came out yesterday. California is going to shut down their Chinook salmon fishing this year. It's not going to happen. You got a coalition of groups, both recreational and commercial, come together and say, we need to close it this year. Uh, Oregon and Washington aren't in as bad shape. The numbers here are looking quite a bit better, at least on the salmon front. Um, we talk about complexity of issues. You've got southern resident killer whales that are dependent on salmon for their survival. And so the, the ecosystem impacts of, you know, primarily on the, you know, on the salmon front are really, really dramatic because they really are a bellwether for what's happening in the environment overall. You lose your salmon runs, you lose a lot of other things. You know, wild steelhead are probably even maybe a little bit more of the canary in the coal mine in that steelhead have much more complex life cycles than salmon do. Steelhead develop different life cycles based on literally the rivers that they, they're in, and they adapt based on specific rivers. I mean, I mean you catch steelhead in temperate rainforests and high desert. Um, they're very, very different in that respect. And um, that's really where my focus has been. I was on the board of the Wild Steelhead Coalition for you know better part of 10 years. I handle social media and communications for them now. Um, I've spent a fair amount of time you know, not only, you know, in British Columbia fishing, but also through the chum, you know, the visibility of all the challenges that these runs have and the politics and the management challenges. I mean, we, we could do hours and hours on this stuff. Your question about whether there is hope or not is uh, sometimes it doesn't feel like there is any hope. Um, and I think that there's two points I'd want to make around this. One is, and I'll use the Thompson River as an example. The Thompson River in southern British Columbia, probably the, one of the world's greatest runs of wild steelhead. Average fish was 15 pounds. It's a huge river. Um, it was almost home water for Seattle. Like you could literally get up to the Thompson almost in about the same time and get out to the OP or coastal Oregon. I did a post on Moldy Chum in 2009 going, there's 900 fish coming back from the Thompson. We are in trouble and other folks. And now that run is functionally extinct. Um, and so the world in general, the, the fishing community, government, you know, management up there, let that run blink out. And I think that that, if you look at the Thompson as an example, that, if you look at, you know, you do kind of the autopsy on it, that is what's going to happen everywhere else unless we unite and do something about these runs. And we're going to lose them forever. And, it, and what's really interesting is, you know, here in Washington over the years, you know, what did we do when our runs began to vanish is we all went and we chased the fish. So we all go to British Columbia. We go to the Skeena system. 
We go up and fish the Boakley. We fish the Kispiox, the Babine, because those runs are healthy and you could go up there and catch fish. They're running into trouble now as well. And my friend Dylan Tomine has written a book called Headwaters. And there's a piece in that book called We're Running Out of North. Which is basically so, like Brian. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you for a second. Yeah. So I just want to I yeah. just want to this <clears throat> this puts a real you know what you just said when I used to and I and I said this to probably ten guides at mm-hmm. the cheek at the uh, at the sheepy yeah uh, this weekend when we were down there. And when I when I first started fishing the Chesapeake, is nothing for us to catch five, maybe seven species. That's right. Without trying real hard. So like an average mm-hmm. day, like let's say in the fall, that's probably when the most species were here. An average day, I mean, you could go out and you'd spend a little bit of time in the morning, you'd catch some stripers. And then you mm-hmm. could break off and and you know, you'd find some you'd find some schools of weak fish real easy to find on your sonar look like a christmas tree and then and then you would uh maybe you'd go drift a ledge and you'd find some summer flounder some fluke then you'd run out to the main stem of the bay and you'd find breaking stripers with spanish mackerel and and bluefish mixed in and you'd go catch some white perch if you wanted um you know and there's just there's just no shortage and then, and then, you know, gosh almighty, like people are going to laugh, you know, especially from the South, but like we were the Northern, Northern extent of the range for croakers. I mean, man, mm-hmm. we, we catch croakers over 18 inches. Like, you know, people yeah, yeah. in Florida catch them and they're like six, eight inches and they use them for bait. Well, mm-hmm. I'm here to tell you, you, you catch them, you catch them 17, 18, 19 inches. That's stronger than a redfish. Pound for pound is strong. And they'd come up there nocturnal. They'd come up on these little reefs and and clam bars, maybe, you know, 10 foot deep right at sunset. Man, they they jump on a Chernobyl crab like a, I mean, fat kid on a cupcake, wham, just knock the, knock the brakes off of it. You sitting there Mm -hmm. fishing with a six or seven weight, like, you know, little 200 line to get down there. And and man, it was fun. And I mean, like clockwork guaranteed. I hadn't caught a croaker. I ain't caught a croaker over 10 inches and in I don't know how long. I don't even know what a weak fish looks like anymore. Mm-hmm. Last one I caught, yep. I was wading off of Delaware. It's probably 12 inches long. I almost cried like that old commercial when we were kids with the Indian where, the, where they threw the garbage out the window. That's how I felt. It wasn't really like, an, wasn't really an Indian. <laughs> I was just crying. Yeah. Yeah. That commercial where the, with the, with the fake, with the fake Indian. Fake Indian. So like, yeah. So like I, uh, well, Hey man, Brian, it was the seventies, man. What do you want, dude? They're doing the best they could. So like, um, so, you know, uh, I, I think I kissed it on the head and I was like, go make babies, you know? So, but what happened is, so you were saying like, we're running out of North. What, yeah. what happened was, is, is that effort of fishing an hour or two for stripers in the morning has gone to fishing all day straight for them. Cause there ain't nothing else. Here. That's right. And it's, That's and right. you know, you talk to the boys from, from Louisiana when I was down there and speckled trout are in big time trouble. They ain't catching them like they did five years ago. Big time trouble. So what's what was the limit? Like 23 fish or something like that? 25. 20, 25 at like 12 yeah. inches, right? Well, I Which love is it basically- when they change 
they changed the catch. They just changed the rules like to whatever it is now. And they're like, well, no, they didn't. You, the legislators blocked it. They were going to change oh, no the way. rules to 15 and legislators right. blocked it. And a 13, yeah, I mean, y'all, we don't ever catch 15 anyway. <laughs> y'all, let's, that's the truth. So l- l- the stock assessment said average anglers getting like oh, three yeah. keepers and they were like, exactly. we can't change it. 15. And they're like, well, like, no, 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 they won't. We're not going to go to from 12 to 13 and a half inches. Are you crazy? We'll never catch a keeper. And I'm sitting there like, do you not know these things grow? Like a, a speckled yeah. trout grows like a weed. I mean, they're sexually matured 11 inches. If you didn't fish for them for four months, you'd be covered up in 13 and a half inch <laughs> speckled trout. I mean, they, they're like, it's the ultimate renewable resource. They breed yeah. faster than rabbits and pigs. Like, like my, it's, it's incredible. So, so they listen. So they, they've knocked the ever living piss out of, out of speckled trout. So what do you think's happening now? Now all those and now all those pictures with dead fish on the boat or sheep's head and redfish. Exactly. Do you know okay, do you know how old is a fourteen inch sheep's head? Well, probably I don't know. I'm gonna guess fourteen inch? Fourteen inch, little guy. Yeah. I don't know. Three, four years old? Yeah, you nailed oh. it. Four or five years old. Yeah. That's sexual old. maturity. H- how old's yeah. a twenty inch sheep's head? Oh shoot! Twenty f twenty effing yeah. years old. Yeah, old. Yeah, really old. Not yeah. a re- not an easily renewable resource. And you go on any of those any of those pages now, and instead of speckled trout lying everywhere, there's sheep's head. And you look mm. at it because there's no limit. I mean, you, there was a twenty five fish limit on speckled trout. There's no size or creel limit on sheep's head. They can kill as many of them as they want. So, like, this is the they're fishing down the chain. Right? right. So like exactly. there's no more speckled trout. We got to load our boat with something else. And it's not going to last long. It's not going to last long. So like, it's so there to a certain extent, to a certain extent, it is the same damn situation. It's just. We go somewhere else. Different. To catch them. We don't. Yeah. yeah. We don't change the fish. We just go chase them somewhere else. So. Exactly. I know yeah. that there there are some external issues that you can control, you know, like change your size and creel limit. And then there's stuff that you just feel like you can't control. And I think, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong here, two of the biggest issues that y'all have, and I, you do like death by a thousand cuts, right? There's, sure. there's yeah. like you said, we could do 20 of these podcasts. Yeah. On we could do one on all the, five the problems, H's, right? But yeah. if, from my limited knowledge, I think that two of the things, two of the biggest issues, three of the biggest issues are, you know, of course, the dams, the the physical impediments to these things reaching their their native spawning Mm -hmm. grounds. Correct. Um, Hatcheries, where the hatchery fish are competing with the native fish. And then the other thing is y'all got y'all are getting clobbered by a changing climate. That's exactly right. Habitat and harvest are both issues as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the five, there's like five H's, right? They're all H's heat, you know, climate is certainly having an impact too. And part of that, like, it's just, it's crazy. You know, you look at, you know, the divide around all of that though, is again, like there's, you know, people want access to the resource for all kinds of different reasons. Like I want to be able to put fish in my freezer. So I need more hatchery fish, despite the fact that science does suggest that, and the wild fish, so they're not impacting the wild runs, but 
there's there's genetic intergression happening everywhere. But again, there's a you know there's that divide because somebody wants to be able to put in the wild fish, so they're not impacting the wild runs. But there's there's genetic intergression happening everywhere. But again, there's a you know there's that divide because somebody wants to be able to put a fish in the cooler, and um, so I need my hatcheries so I can do that. Or yeah, it's it's super tough in that respect. And I, the other point I would make, and like you say, well, yeah, okay, you know, I can't catch my croakers, so I'm going to focus on stripers all day. On the East Coast, there's I, again, this is relative abundance. Um, you guys, you know, there's debates over management. There's debate over conservation tactics and techniques and policy, but you can still go out and catch a striped bass. I'm like, there's not many steelhead left. There just aren't. And so we're fighting over crumbs. And so the divide is really pretty strong as it relates to that. And, but the fundamentals are the same in terms of, you know, people casting, throwing darts at management. You don't know what you're doing and your counts are wrong and so on and so forth. There's also some fire at the NGOs about you guys just want to close down fisheries. Sometimes NGOs use the, the legal process, litigation to be effective. And some are very effective at litigating. And so there's this just constant butting of heads. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, I, I've told you this, that I, you know, why I have tremendous respect for what you and the ASGA are doing is that, you know, it's a, it's a guide community that is really focused on better business through conservation and, you know, how are we going to defend on, you know, how are we going to protect our fisheries, you know, on the impacts of climate? And those things is we got to have healthy fisheries. And one of the things that we did at the coalition was, um, we created now or never, which basically said, if you're a 21st century steelheader, and I would say this, if you're a 21st century angler, fill in the blank for your fish. You have an obligation to fight for the resource, protect the resource and the habitat that resource is dependent on for its survival. Otherwise, you, you know don't have what any makes business. Me, you have no you know business being me, on the water. <clears throat> So if, if I stepped on Brian there, he basically said, if you don't fight for the resource, you don't have any business on the water. And I got to tell you, man, like, uh, boy, I agree with you. Um, I can't tell you how many friends I've lost um, mm -hmm. because they just won't get involved, but they'll be the first ones to put up a picture of a big fish. And, right. and as it, as it wears on and goes on and goes on, you mm -hmm. know, what it comes down to is they're selfish. They want to, they want to be cool. And, yeah. um, and being cool. Yeah. Being cool is like, look at me. I'm an awesome fisherman and look at these big fish that I'm catching. And, and I always come back to them and I'm like, well, I don't understand. Like you love it. You love the feeling it gives you, but you don't want to fight for it. Right. And, yeah. To me, that's like, I, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, I tell, I, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but I'm gonna make you laugh so hard you're gonna knock a snot <laughs> bubble out of your nose. <laughs> and this is when it, when people when people are like, <laughs> oh, Tony's too abrasive. He needs to be nicer. He's mean in the meetings. You know. Well, I look. I, 
go go play badminton because i have Pick people whose livelihoods I, I have livelihoods my friends depend on us to win these fights and it's personal and again if mm-hmm. you don't if you're not willing to fight go, you know walking around and, and being a nice guy that may great that may be great if you're a car salesman or something but it ain't gonna get you far in this world uh that that, that we live in um that's right so when i here's i'm gonna make this where i'm gonna make you laugh when i was um shoot i was probably in like i was probably in like third or fourth grade and uh and you know we're playing some of the most violent football games i ever played in dodgeball we're on we're on the playground at recess uh at the school i went to in tennessee and i mean we would we would somebody always go into the nurse's office bloodied up or you know feel like they broke their ribs or a broken arm or so we just man you know we we were sitting there on sundays watching like you know the steel curtain the steelers defense and you know oh my gosh like that's who we wanted to be there was none of this like roughing the passer 15 yards <laughs> like they would clothesline people you know i mean that's how football used to be so anyway we're playing recess and i leveled this kid i mean leveled him sent him into a bush started crying making fun of him all that kind of stuff you know typical recess in the 1970s so mm-hmm. i come around the corner bell rings we're all getting ready and my mom picked me up on like the side of the school and um and i see my mom's you know I open the door and i see my mom's car and i come around down the steps and there's that boy and three of his friends and i was mm-hmm. like uh oh I'm, I'm fixing to, I'm fixing to get my, my tail whooped here. And I, I swung my book bag and I hit one of them and I ran like the wind uh, all the way across the field, get to my mom's car. She looks at me and rolls up, rolls up the windows and locks the door. She, no, she cracks the window and she says, no son of mine runs from anyone. No. And she goes, you, you take care of business or you're coming home. You're going to have to deal with me. And I was like, screw that. I'd much (laughs) rather fight three boys my age than my mom. Like my mom's (laughs) going to whoop me. You know what I mean? Like, so I dropped my book bag, walked right over to them. They had this stunned look on their face. Like what the hell's going on? I pretty much fought three other kids for a couple minutes. I came back, shirt was ripped, black eye, bloody nose, whole nine yards ended up kind of fighting them all off and I my mom unlocked the door and I sat down I was just terrified and I looked at her and she goes that that's how my son acts so anybody ever wondering where I came from or why I am the way I am I held the flashlight for my dad when he fixed the car in the middle of the night I grew up in the 70s uh yeah. it's a different thing it's a different generation and I, I don't put up with any mamby pamby wordplay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you accountable for what you do and and who you are and what you say. And if you want to just come along to get along and not really accomplish anything, but be friends with everyone, don't come and ask for a job at the guides association because that's not oh, who yeah. we are, and that's not who we'll ever be. And I think you know, Brian. I, I don't know, like. I think that's why we get stuff done, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons. I think you you guys get stuff done. And I think that, you know, we can't take the same approach. I mean, you got to look at 
that's one of the things I say out, you know, here with folks is like, you know, you look at management and like, you guys have been doing the same thing for the last, like, oh yeah, you've been trying the hatchery thing. It's time to, you know, maybe try another approach. And it's the same. Like you look at, you know, the, the, what's happened in, you know, the cod, you know, in, in New England waters, right? The fish, you know, the, there's that great book. And you like, you look at, you know, the, some of those sectors and management side, like people have like, oh, no, we need to do this and do that. And like everything you've ever done has always been about maximum sustainable harvest or maximum sustainable yield. And I use this reference in a pod, another, another pod, which was like, how about maximum sustainable recreation, you know, which is going to be good for our business. And everybody thinks that because I'm a member of the Wild Steelhead Coalition, I don't want to put a wild steelhead on the grill. Like, I got news for you. I, there's nothing I would rather do than catch a big, giant striped bass and throw it on the barbecue regularly. But I don't do it because I don't think it's the right thing to do. And the same goes here. Like, okay, you want to you go catch crappy, you know, out-of-basin hatchery steelhead, stand shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the guys at the hatchery thing? Or do you want to catch up? You know, so I don't know. You know, I, I kind of get back to, like, is there going to be hope? You know, and oftentimes I feel like we're pushing a rock. You know, what was it? Was it Sisyphus or whatever? The guy that keep having the rock roll down on him. He kept pushing the rock up. Like, I feel like we're that guy in a lot of ways. And we're just postponing the inevitable. And with climate, what's happening, the impacts there and happening so quickly. Yeah. The only way we're going to keep the sustainability of the business and the resources by protecting the goddamn thing, you know? And, you know, everybody talks about, you know, steelhead, it's the fish of a thousand casts. And you're like, I got news for you. <laughs> They're not hard to catch. <laughs> They're hard to find. Like, that's the deal. You know, like my story is, you know, I went, I swung for steelhead for a bunch, you know, came, took trips to shoot, saw this stuff. Wow, this is dumb. Oh, I love standing in the river all day. Like bullshit. <laughs> I want to catch a fish, right? <laughs> like I, I love that whole thing. Oh, it's just all about being in nature. I'm like, yeah, no, it's supposed to, like, I'm out here trying to catch something. I go to BC. I, I'm fortunate enough as the Patagonia fly fish guy to go on a, you know, a hosted expensive trip to a river. And in the first 20 minutes, I swing up a fish. <laughs> I'm like, okay, they're not hard to catch. They're hard to find. And if they're there, even I can catch a steelhead, a well-presented fly in front of a wild steelhead. They will eat it, you know, or not even so well-presented, but yeah, it's crazy. And I, even on the striped bass side, you know, I was late to the game. And I remember when I was in Patagonia, I've got a friend that's got a place in Aquasport and we'd go out and have a striper camp every September. And I remember we would run out of the harbor and there'd be fish blitzing everywhere, everywhere, like crazy. Every year, false albacore, striped bass, all of it. I have not that I saw back in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. So yeah, hats off to you guys for what you're doing and that I saw back in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's crazy. It's really crazy. So yeah, hats off to you guys for what you're doing and you and the guys, you know, captains for clean water, you know, guides, you know, getting active in, in, in the, in the policy that needs to help. And I, you know, I, I use you guys as an example out here, you know, cause we, I, we take a lot of incoming fire from folks, you know, thinking that we're trying to 
you know, take, put people out of work. And that's really not what we're trying to do. And like, I would love to see some organization out here around, you know, some of the business interests focusing on what the, some of the root causes are of why, you know, there might not be making a living at it much longer, you know? So do you um, think, <clears throat> you know, cause y'all actually, it's interesting, you know, Brian, um, I'm only saying this because, you you know, you keep saying you're late to the game, but, you know, stripers used to spawn in just about every river, you know, north of North Carolina. And one of the big issues that they faced in New England, because New England, you know, oh. it didn't, it doesn't have the Chesapeake Bay. You know, it doesn't kind of have that massive estuary, but it does have a ton of smaller in medium-sized oh. rivers, but those rivers yep. were coming out of mountains and they were moving fast and they got dammed up a lot of times yep. for like grist mills and stuff like that. Sure. And that yep. was like the death of a thousand cuts, right? I think I was sure. at a NOAA meeting many years ago, four years ago, and they were talking about all the funding and the, the meeting was in Virginia. And if I recall correctly, they had had funding for dam, very small dam removal. You know, again, these, these little grist mill things that just, just they basically yeah. take a bulldozer and knock them over. You know, it's not. And they yep. had identified almost 500 oh. in one state. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. And you got to think about all yeah. the herring runs and the couple of striped bass. And the, so you, you're not that. talking about like the Susquehanna here you know, big mm -hmm. ass river, but you're talking about 500 small ones. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, you know, people think like, oh my gosh, you know, the Chesapeake Bay is the home of the striped bass and yada, yada, yada. Well, it's because our rivers are slow as molasses rolling up hills in January. We don't have <laughs> fast rivers and it wasn't worth anything to dam them up. There was no, there was no human benefit to put up a dam. So it's not it's not that this was the perfect place for stripers. It was that there it was the most imperfect place for humans to alter the flow of the river. Right? Yeah, it, absolutely. It, dead, yeah, deadbeat dams. I mean, there's some I mean, that's to me. I mean, I get it. Like, why would you like you hear the argument? Why take out a perfectly good dam? You know, like, well, they're not perfectly good anymore. They're deadbeat dams. They need to be taken out. We can argue all day long about the fourth dams on the lower Snake River. You know, I mean. There was a house hearing today that I actually watched subcommittee hearing and Will you know, was there. Was, an, was Will, he? Yeah. Poston, Poston yeah. was, Poston was there in person. Um, you yeah, know, there, there was an ag guy a Northwest Like I've got a post going up on the chum tomorrow about it. I'm like, sorry, dude, like this is, this is not good. You know, and the hydro guy, basically like you could have taken out two pom-poms i love the, lo the lower snake river dams blah, blah, blah. like and there was a just so much bs coming out of that and you go okay i get it that's a big gnarly giant hairball but those little impoundment dams you've got hundreds and hundreds of them everywhere those things need to come out and what really is annoying to me is when they have these little dams they create a little lake and people got like a little <laughs> i know that just yeah, yeah, dude, that just that yeah. just happened yeah. to um oh my gosh, Bob who Bob Mallard, who's Bob Mallard's group, the Wild Fish Coalition? Is yeah, that yeah, up out of Maine. Yeah, yeah. so he's yeah. okay. I like Bob, right? I I mean he yeah. he is a guy, he's got some moxie, 
Okay. He ain't afraid to say how it is. And I'm not, I'm not getting into the little kerfuffle. He just got into with somebody that we know. Um, There's no point (laughs) in it, but there was just, there was just a dam, I believe in New Hampshire or Maine. Gosh, I can, you know, we have so many issues, but we actually wrote a letter for it because uh, a couple of our friends, a couple of our friends uh, asked us to because they were fighting the good fight. We don't normally do that, but we knew them and they're really good people. So we lent our voice to it. And, um, and it's exact. it is literally verbatim what you just said. It was like eight people and they're like, but we like the pond that this dam created exactly. and you're going to, you're going to screw us up, man. And the, dude, the dam, the you could look, <laughs> the dam was like four feet high and i'm like i was like well, just go there go there with like five m80s and just blow the damn thing up just in the middle of the night and just be done with it i'm kidding everyone i'm kidding do not do not send me letters it's just a joke but uh you know it's crazy it takes that much effort to just do the right thing that affects four perceived effects for people like come on man Come on. Yeah. And I, I mean, I get it. You know, the four lower snake river dams is kind of a big deal. You know, like they generate, they do generate some power. Um, but you know, they, we have spent, I don't know how many billions of dollars trying to restore salmon to the Columbia river basin. It's like, you know, if you just kind of took those things out, you could probably find some other ways to replace the power. Uh, I got news for you, but you know, it's compli it's it's super complicated. I mean, meanwhile, you know, the Elwa dams coming out Elwa dams came out here. And you look at how that river rebounded, you look at the Klamath initiative that's happening, there's five dams coming out of there. Look at um, Brian, that- look at the the bloaty dam around here. There was a series of dams on the Patapsco River, which those mm-hmm. those dams went up, gosh, in like the eighteen hundreds, maybe some even that's earlier. Right. One yeah. of them one of them was like it was a massive hazard because of the way the water flowed over the dam. Yeah. Anyone people who died. swam in it could get sucked into it and people died exactly. every year. Exactly. So we, yeah. that we ultimately figured out a way to take the dams out. We used a lot of the, um, a lot of the rubble from the dams to create artificial reefs. So it was kind of like a win win yeah. for the bay. Did you use M80s? Did you use M80s? <laughs> Dude, you should, you can go on, look at the bloaty dam, just Google it. It wasn't an M80. Yeah. I, I wish I could have pushed the thing down on the box because it was pretty awesome. Yeah. But, uh, they blew, the, yeah. they blew that thing to Mars. So, um, yeah. But within, within like four or five months, the first owl wives like we're up above they were they were they they videotaped them shooting up the river absolutely and that's man yeah. that's going through baltimore harbor Ech. like hundreds of millions of gallons of raw sewage a a, a sewer system from the 1600s like yeah forever it, chemicals yeah oh just <laughs> complete nastiness and we knock these damn downs yeah. and these little fish are like we're coming home you know, after 200 plus years of these things being there, it's wild. I mean, I may be crazy, but I, you know, you said it in the beginning. I always think nature finds a way. You just got to give it a chance. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, out here, you know, we've got some good habitat out in the OP, you know, we really do. I mean, a lot of those rivers flow out of the park. And so you kind of look at it and you go, Hey, you know, maybe you should just stop putting hatchery fish in there and, Let's see what happens, but um, 
it's a tough one. And I will, I will you know, say, I to, think you, I think, you know, the guides association is completely and utterly anti-hatchery boondoggle. It's basically giving <laughs> up. It's giving up on the wild fishery. Right. I call, I call it the hatchery welfare state. Nobody likes to hear that. <laughs> it's the truth. Well, it is like they're subsidizing, like, and go try to find the line items, like how much money the federal government's spending on hatcheries. It's like really hard to find because it's really buried in all of that appropriations money. And then you look at what Washington spends on it. And I get it. There's a huge economy around it. You know, you've got all the people that work there and all that. I was like, grow food in them now. Keep them as hatcheries would grow like tilapia <laughs> and sell it to the neighborhood. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's just nuts, man. It's just, you know, uh, it's pretty crazy. I think I've seen it all, you know, and I, I do see it all. I see it every day, you know, through the chum and, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're still standing, <laughs> but, um, you know, trying to put our voice to good work and, you know, I'm working on this tomorrow's fish thing. We'd have a chance to talk about that, you know, but we're trying to, kind of build a coalition that's, you know, going to really advocate for policy and action at the federal level around and create advocates around the nation's fisheries in the face of climate change. And I went to that saltwater rec conference and you served on that panel there. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me in terms of, you know, we as anglers need to take the lead, you know, whatever, whatever that menu tells us, right? And one of those places is climate change on there. And we're the ones that see it before everybody else does. And so. Um, well, Brian, I think it's, to- I think it's undeniable, you know, look, we, there's so many things that are wrong with everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so many issues are polarizing. And, and I think one of the easiest ways for anyone who's spent, any quantifiable time on the water to understand it is you just ask any fisherman how much change they've seen in 10 years yep and they'll start Mm -hmm. telling you stories you know about a different fish that they caught or this fish is gone and this fish is now here or you know you hear you just it and it's it's just a non-stop you know this has Mm -hmm. changed that has changed and and I think that's a real easy way for everyone to come to the table and agree that things are changing. And you don't have to get into any bickering over whether climate change is real or not. Yeah, you don't have to fight over anything, Brian. It's yes or no. Have you seen big changes in the last 10 years? And how do we manage yeah. for that? And I think that's really, that's the discussion that all fishermen should be having, right? Correct. Absolutely. And I think if you look at the numbers, you you look at the polling, it was really funny. There's a piece on, it was on Moldy Chum today. They had a a Northeastern University research paper that just came out that said, fishermen can be really effective working workers on climate (laughs) advocates. I was like, geez, no shit, Sherlock or Dick Tracy, where'd you leave your squad car? But it, was it, only took like, him, it only took him $20 million <laughs> to figure that out. Right? I was like, what? Like I had I, done it for a dozen donuts, but they, so what did they do? They, 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 they talked about attractive people that are, attra- it's like attractive resources. Like I go look at birds and I, I go look at the flowers and I go hiking. Those are 
you're there because you're attractive. Whereas the extractive side, which is the fishermen and the hunters and all that. And it was all like, Oh, like we, they can all work together. It's like, it was like, duh. Uh, okay. But it was a big science thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of what we need to do. Um, you know, but there are, you know, I'm not going to say any names, but there are some armies of darkness out there, so to speak, that really don't see it that way. And they're well-funded and they have great, you know, they're, they're effective as it relates to, you know, how they pull the levers of power. And uh, we need I, to be better I, at it. I disagree. I just think they've been around a long time. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. Because <laughs> you've been beaten. I like wouldn't. A drum, I right? would. I wouldn't call them effective. I. Yeah. Okay. I would say they're big and well funded. Big and well funded, and they've been around a while. But good you know, points. effective. Thank you for that. I, you <laughs> right. know, I, I mean, <laughs> that must be a different definition on the West Coast of effect. Yo, that must Aff- be the politically effective. Re- I said affective. Yeah. Not effective. <laughs> I mean, good, good Classic. lord! Um, oh, God. You know, on a, on a level, on a level playing field, uh, but it's not. You know, they, they don't wouldn't have a chance. But it's not a level playing field, is it? Right? When somebody has a twenty year no, head start, no, no. And I think you know, I do think the brand. I mean, you said earlier, you know, the brands are kind of walking the walk, but I think the brands could do a little better job on some of this stuff. You know. I mean, I get it. You know, you're trying to sell rods and reels. I'm trying to sell spay rods, you know, and I'm like, yeah, there aren't any steelhead left. Like, really? You know, that's why, why, where do you think trout spay came from? Right? Like, oh my God, like we've invented a, another sur- whole a surplus of- inventory of steelhead yeah, spay like, rods. Well, no, not really. No, trout spay. Like, there's a whole move. There's a movie out in the Montana Fishing Film Festival this spring. It's called B Roll, and it's about a bunch of people that are steelhead anglers and they go trout spay to get the vibe of steelhead fishing, but they're fishing for trout um, because their steelhead runs have declined to the point that they're like, there aren't any left. So yeah, pretty funny. It's like the, I caught, it's like the hybrid bicycle. remember the old, like the comfort bike, like the bike industry invented the hybrid and it was like, cause nobody was buying any bikes. <laughs> so what did they do? They invent a new category. So trout's bay is kind of the hybrid bicycle of fly fishing. <laughs> It's like Euro nymphing. So listen, if 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 Euro nymph for striped bass. So what would you? Where would you rate Tenkara in all? Oh, dude, don't get me started. I, you know, I I have friends in that space and all that good, but I still remember like when Lefty like got like Lefty. There was a sticker on a rules board out in Idaho somewhere, and it said Lefty no Tenkara. It was like, and he, yeah. And Lefty actually came around on Tenkara after a while because he realized it was a way that you could teach people that were disabled how to cast easier to some extent, right? And it's it's true, but yeah, the Euro-nymphing thing is just classic, right? It was like, well, they were Euro-nymphing. The reason why the United States got their asses kicked in the world championships year in and year out is because the Euros were Euro-nymphing that whole time. And it like took, it took the United States like 12 years to figure out it was kind of a thing. <laughs> so now yeah, it's a I thing. Would, that's how I would <clears throat> define it. Kind of a thing. Like, I mean, you know, it's look, deadly. <laughs> look, I'm just, it's deadly. I'm just going to say it. Like, <laughs> 
I, yeah. I don't, you know what? Far be it for me to change today because I am who I am. Tinkara yeah. fishing is just, I mean, oh my God. I, yeah, I'd rather, personally, I'd rather fish with like a two weight or a zero weight fly rod with a reel on it, personally. I'd, I'd personally um, rather fish with a cane pole. I mean, at least it would <laughs> remind me of my youth. Like, there you go. I mean, I just look at it and I'm like, what if you have to make a 30 foot cast, you weirdo? Like, you know, or land a five pound trout. Tinkara. I saw somebody who was like, was like, I'm going to catch a tarpon on a Tinkara. I'm like, oh, yeah. That was, you took that as the most irresponsible thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Like, I got a 50 weight power rod. <laughs> yeah. Like, how's that fish going to handle? Like, she's going to beat that snot out of itself against your boat, you idiot. Uh, like, do you really well, think you're going to mainstream fishing for tarpon with a cane pole? Like, come on, I man. I think I'm going to do, I think I'm going to do a whole thing about your own nymphing for steelhead. <laughs> <laughs> so, the great story was when we, I first moved to the Pacific Northwest, you know, I was a trout guy. And, and so, <laughs> 90% of the fishing that we did was subsurface with indicators, you know, it's like, eh, okay. Somehow that's okay. But indicator fishing for steelhead is like, that's nah, not cool. You gotta be swinging. Right. So, but I was like, I came up here and I took a steelhead class with a guy and it was a really good class. Like I wanted to learn it. I was like, I'm totally into it. And I looked at the run and we was all about swinging flies. I looked at that run. And I was like, I could nymph the shit out of this. <laughs> I was like, I could get, and I actually caught my first steelhead in the beginner hole on the Kalama River indicator fishing. <laughs> my first steelhead. And it was a hatchery fish. It's like, actually, I have a picture of it on my wall down the hallway here. And like, it, I should have killed it because it was a hatchery fish. But I didn't know yeah. any, di I didn't know any different. I was like, oh my God. I released it. And you look at it and you go, boy, that is one sorry looking steelhead. But it was the first one I got. <laughs> It was amazing. I was with Casey Sheehan at the time, who was president of Patagonia, CEO at Patagonia, ended up becoming the CEO at Sims Fishing. He just retired. Dear friend. He's the guy that got me into fly fishing, actually. <clears throat> and I was like, I looked over at him. He was sitting next to me. I go, dude, I think I'm bit. And he, he, I have it. He, he wrote a whole story about it. And it was like, the while I'm yelling at him, I'm like, hey, I think I got one. And the fish is like cartwheeling in front of me. <laughs> all screwed up. And he's like, Bennett, get it on the wheel. Get it on the wheel. <laughs> so, which reminds me of that. So that's that get it on the, get them on the wheel this is a funny story. We were talking about kind of the elitist fly fishing thing. Casey and I fished in Missouri one year and never fished it. We were with Chad Ward from uh, Bob Ward's and some, which is a really big, great retailer up in Montana. We go fish, we go fish it and we get to this spot and there's a, a guide with a boat and he's got two of the biggest tweed bags you've ever seen in your life in the boat. A couple, husband and wife. And they got the full hats on. Like they are like classic tweed bag program, right? And so, um, she, she, and they're nymphing in this beautiful run. And every time she runs through that bobber goes down, he goes, Oh, you got one. And she screws it up. And so finally she hooks a fish and it's like, it's like takes off and he's like, get it on the wheel, get it on the wheel. And she's like, ah, and the guide runs like literally a hundred yards down the river and nets that fish. <laughs> and so every time I fish with Shannon, I hook a fish, 
my first steel had included, he yells at me, get it on the wheel. I'm like, shut up. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> Oh my god! Had to throw a fish story or two in there. We almost died on the way home from that trip. Chad was driving and he fell asleep and came around a corner and there was like nineteen elk standing in the road. It was like whoa! We hit the (laughs) stopped on the res and bought like nine Red Bulls and made it the rest of the way home. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of trout fishing. I'm leaving on the 19th to go fish the fish. One of my favorite spots in Idaho, amazing ranch. Um, beautiful, but I'm like, I'm, I got my fly box and it's full of size 20 blueing olives. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> <Tell me> now <laughs> I actually bought this little thing. It's shaped like a fish and you can take your little fly and you stick it in this little magnet and it goes, ding. And then you slide your tippet through it and it threads the fly. <laughs> I don't need reader. I don't need those things on my glasses to flip down to look at the fly thing anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I'm telling you, one advantage of steelhead fishing and saltwater fishing, man, it's like bigger flies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right? dude, you're not kidding, mm. man. You're not kidding. Like, uh, I, yep. I don't I live anywhere back close on- to a trout stream. I don't live anywhere close to a trout stream anymore. And I got to tell you, man, I don't, I don't miss it very much. Like, um, it was fun. And I mean, I would totally go again in a heartbeat. The the one thing I, I went, uh, I took my, I took my nephews to the white river. Um, cause they, they still live yeah, in man. Tennessee and, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, they were, brown trout. they did the whole bomb, bomb the shoreline with streamers thing. Mm, yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, I had never done that. Cause I don't live, I never lived next to big rivers and it was always like walking wade, you know, and kind of, mm-hmm. so like I'd yep. surgically like take apart a pool and they're just, you're just right. going by at six knots yeah, yeah. and just like, yeah, yeah. Boom, 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 you know, cast yeah, three strips, in. repeat, cast three strips. Yep. And like, I'd catch a fish and I'm like, well, I want to go back there. And they're yep. like, well, maybe tomorrow when we, and I'm like, well, <laughs> but that's the only place we caught a fish in the last three miles. I want to go back. Yeah. That was good looking water. Well, maybe tomorrow. There's and I'm like, after the first motor. day, I'm like, I'm like, this sucks. I'm like, I want, I'll go back there. Like that oh. was the good spot, you know? No, no, so, no. Oh, oh no. God. I, get it. I mean, it just, oh Jesus. Like, give well, me a break, so man. I, like I, I used to fish a place called gray reef in Wyoming a lot which is below Alcova Reservoir. And it was funny. What's her name? The gal from the new uh, house rep from Wyoming that clobbered Liz Cheney was test was, she was talking today on the house uh, committee meeting. And she was talking about the, the miracle mile. Have you ever heard of the miracle mile? And why we have the miracle miles because we have these two big reservoirs and miracle mile used to be this. It's an amazing fishery. It's a climb, but I fish a little bit South of there behind this other one. And it gets super windy out there. We called it the dirty ditch. You know, it kind of goes through all this sagebrush and the wind would just blow. And I'm, I'm referencing Casey again, my friend, we put a trolling motor on the drift boat <laughs> and we'd run through a run and we'd go hit it again because <laughs> we would just fire up the trolling motor and go back up. 
And then we got down low and the wind was blowing so hard upstream. You couldn't row. We just like, <laughs> we just floated. Yeah. People would see us and go, what are you guys doing? Like we're catching a shit ton of trout is what we're doing. Cause, we're, <laughs> cause there's about a thousand trout in this 100 yard run. <laughs> yeah i get it that's yeah no oh that just you know again like not the only thing that i'm gonna stand hard on criticizing is tinkara everything i like i'm not criticizing like bombing the banks i see that i mean i can see how it would be fun just not for me you know i really i kind of like i kind of like exactly you know getting into it and and kind of really learning Mm -hmm. a piece of water and it's just that just seems like i'm dancing it seems like a numbers game. You know what I mean? Just like you're going to throw X amount of cast and you're going to catch X amount of fish. Um, yeah. But no, sure. I, it's I always, till the, till yeah. the day I die, I will ridicule Tenkara. I see no, I, I, I see no value in it whatsoever. I, I hope Tom Sadler's not listening. Tenkara. Tenkara. Lefty, no Tenkara. <laughs> Jeez, cry my ninny. Um, uh, well, I'll tell like, you, Brian. Yeah, yeah. No, man, it's, uh, you know, we're going to, I think we're going to have you on here again real soon. Like when you get back from your, when you get back from your next trip, man, we're going to, we're going to kind of finish, we're going to finish this up a little bit. We're going to talk more about your new group to tomorrow's fish. That'd be great. The challenges, the challenges that, um, that, you know, your fishery faces and kind of all fisheries and how we can kind of approach that on a federal level and yeah. hopefully make some meaningful changes in our lifetime and certainly in our kids' sure. lifetime. Um, I think we need to talk about the cease and desist I got on the chum, too. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Listen, as soon as this is over with, I'm going to send you a calendar invite for part two because I think... perfect. I think I we got it. a lot more. We got a lot more stories, and this is far from over. So uh, I hope. Thank you, thank it. you for joining us for part one of the adventures of Moldy Chum. My and, pleasure. Uh, my left and, arm is Moldy. My right arm is Chum. And we we are gonna we are we are really gonna get down and dirty with part two of the adventures yeah. of Moldy. Chum. So y'all stay tuned uh for part two send any comments or questions or hate mail because we pretty much made fun of everyone on this one <laughs> two comments especially tinkara tinkara uh fishing. trash hey you neuronymph <laughs> trash guys i didn't say that euro nymph people <laughs> <laughs> all right that's oh it we're God. done take Bye. care good night <laughs> tinkara